Come with me as we dive into some of the most intimate diaries a person could share. My mission is to inspire you to push through during the toughest of times, too. Thank you for being here. This is Push Diaries Podcast, and I'm your host, Tess. Episode 40, Kim. It's real life. Be kind. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Push Diaries Podcast. I have my friend Kim on today to speak with us. She had contacted me a while back and wanted to come on and share her story. And so we were able to finally get together and record her episode today. I was friends with her and her sister, Nicole. We lived, what, like two blocks away from one another, and we met that way first. And so we would play together with the Petrons and the Nelsons and the Natses and play kick the can, right? And ride bikes and just, I don't know, being a kid in 20 or in 2000s maybe was easier than being a kid in 2021. So yeah, yeah. (laughs) I agree. Hello. Hi. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm doing really good, Danielle. I'm good, too. I moved to Michigan, Kim, like, um, I think it'll be two years in June or July. So I really miss my family, but, you know, I just have to make an effort to go home and see them more often. But that's what I feel like I tell everybody when they ask me how I'm doing. But how are you? Tell me where you're living right now and what's going on with you. Oh, not a whole lot. Just six or, well, 17 weeks pregnant now but um i live in south dakota where the corn palace is so (laughs) oh nice but yeah so it's nice but it's on two and a half acres so the dogs can run and get a garden going hopefully soon and (laughs) cool well that's awesome yeah awesome i like it it's nice and congratulations on being 17 weeks pregnant that's really exciting yeah, yeah, got past that milestone, so. Yeah, I bet that feels good. Yeah. I know you want to cover a lot today, so let me know kind of where you want to start. Okay. So thank you for coming on the podcast. So we grew up in Cannon Falls, right? And you were, what, two years older than me or something? What year did you graduate? 2005. Nice, yeah. And I graduated in 2007, so. Yeah, wait. Yeah. So yeah. why did you want to come on the podcast? I wanted to come on the podcast to just talk about awareness about kidney disease. Being a living donor, it's very near and dear to my heart. I believe strongly in it. It's something that I made a personal choice to donate to my dad in 2015. And, well, I guess I should say, 2014, because that's when we found out he needed to have a kidney transplant, and went through all the steps, testing to, you know, get approved. So, I believe that donating is small, and I think it's important, and I think that more people should be aware of it. I think that people should look into it and not be afraid of it. (laughs) 
I think people are afraid to maybe donate or that their life will be different afterwards or their health might be in jeopardy. (laughs) But you can go on a perfectly normal life. Yeah, that's amazing. And so Kim and I were just talking that we might do like a part two episode where she could talk a lot about that experience because I think you're right. A lot of people have like an understanding of donating an organ just by like, oh, if I were to die and get in an awful car accident, it's like an organ donation thing that's just on your license, but it's not something people just talk about and donate otherwise, right? That's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's easy to check a box when you're getting your driver's license to say, yeah, I'll be a donor. But you can do that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they can use your organs, you know. Right. So being a living donor, you can donate more than just your kidney. I think you can donate part of your, your lung. You can donate part of your liver, which your liver will regenerate back to its, I think, Close to its original size after, I think, about three or four months. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah, I did a paper on it in college and learned that you can donate part of your liver and it'll regenerate itself. That's amazing. That's important. And there might be a couple other things you can be a living donor for. I'm just not quite sure. Yeah, like blood and even, yeah, bone marrow. I mean, the list goes on. Yeah. Well, very cool. Yeah. Okay. And then you also wanted to come on because you have had some experience with unhealthy relationships, depression, and even losing a child. And so I don't know if you want to start talking about kind of where you were in life when those things first kind of came into the forefront of your life. And then we can just slowly unfold your story from there, whatever you're comfortable with. Yep. Yeah, um, actually, I so I donated in 2015, in February, and by August, I found out I was pregnant. By December, I found out I lost the baby and needed to get induced. So that caused a lot of strain on myself, my relationship with my boyfriend at the time. I would say probably postpartum depression that I never really dealt with. So you said you donated an organ, then you got pregnant. And how long were you pregnant before you had to be induced? What, four months? Four months. 16 weeks. Yeah. So because of losing the baby, I would battle or went through postpartum depression. Um, contemplated suicide because I didn't manage my depression. I didn't take care of it. I didn't seek help. Um, It affected my relationship. And in that process, I felt like my relationship wasn't healthy either. He wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't a horrible person. But one person can't make a relationship work. Right. (laughs) Two of you need it. You know, two of you have to work at it. You can't alone. One person can't do therapy or one person can't just try and figure out life while the other person thinks that they don't need help or they don't need to talk about anything or, you know, 
Yeah. I wanted things in life. I wanted to move forward. I wanted to try again. I wanted to get married. And it just created a, you know, an unhealthy relationship for me. So what kinds of things were you doubting in yourself when you lost the baby or even after the organ donation? Were there things your partner was telling you that you heard in your mind and you just thought like, no, that's not true? Or like what kinds of things did you notice that were bubbling up and kind of showing those cracks in your relationship? Um, I think part of it was I didn't really have much going on after my donation. It was more so after we lost the baby. I just felt like I was dealing with it openly and he was not and he internalized everything and didn't talk about it where I wanted to talk about it and women feel things differently than men and I was ready to try again. I was ready to, you know, get pregnant and it wasn't to replace, you know, our baby that we lost, but it was to fill that void that I wanted so badly with him, you know, to have a baby again. And he wasn't on that same page. And we battled it out, you know, for, oh, man, five years after that, four and a half years, you know. So it's it just wears on you after some time when you want certain things and you're not getting them. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like it was so hard. And even like you're saying, you know, we go through things differently, right? Person to person. And I even think, Kim, how much, how much did your grief change over those five years? Like, did you go through just immense sadness or anger? And maybe he did too and just didn't know how to deal with it? Um, yeah, I went through anger. I went through, I was sad at first. I felt like it was a um, topic that was hush-hush. People didn't want to talk about it or like it was something people wanted to avoid because they, I don't know if they thought they didn't want to hear it or they thought it would upset me if I talked about it. But I want to talk about it. I need to talk about it. And so I went from being sad and depressed to angry and mad and frustrated um, because I wasn't able to pull those feelings and emotions out from him. You know, he internalized everything and I just, it was, it was, you know, something we didn't talk about, you know, and that's hard and I think that weighs on relationship when you both can't openly talk about something you both went through (laughs) I mean you both lost a child and right you know we're both dealing with a loss and so it it was hard for me when I couldn't get what he was feeling you know I couldn't get his emotions I couldn't get I felt like I didn't get answers yeah so I think my depression you know turned into anger but it I still was trying to deal with the depression on my own. Yeah. And you weren't giving up. Like, you just wanted him to open up, but it wasn't something he could do at the time. 
Right. So, yeah. do, so do you want to walk us through, like, the excitement of getting pregnant, what you noticed, or what your OBGYN noticed that something was wrong? Can you walk us through the timeline of those days? When I found out I was pregnant, I had just gotten back from California, a really exciting time in my life. I went to California and met um, an uncle and cousins that... You know, we had just learned about. It was my grandpa's son that we didn't know or we didn't get to meet. You know, he was never part of our life. So we spent a weekend in California meeting them. And then I got back and I didn't feel pregnant. (laughs) But I was like, I'll just take one, you know, because why not? And I was pregnant and we were excited because I know we finally got to that point in our relationship where. We both agreed to get pregnant and have a baby and take that step in our life. So it was a really exciting time. And, you know, the months went on and things were going good. I mean, my visits were fine. You know, there was nothing wrong. So I actually went in on the 21st of December, I believe. And I told Trevor, you go to work since we have a it was like a 7 a.m. flight to Phoenix. And I was like, you go to work, see if you can get off early instead of going in late and working till 11 o'clock. So I went to my appointment by myself and, you know, normal checkup. They don't, my doctor doesn't do ultrasounds at 16 weeks. He just does the handheld monitor and went in and did all his questions and then checked for heartbeat and couldn't find it. And he's like, all right, well, let's go do an ultrasound. And in that moment, I felt my world stop because I'm sure just like any other human, your mind goes to the worst case scenario. Like there's not going to be a heartbeat. There's not, you know, I'm going through what every mother's worst nightmare is. So we get in the ultrasound room, and he does an ultrasound, and my worst fears, you know, came true. And he told me that there was no heartbeat, and it was just him and I in this room with the walls closing in. Um, and it was hard because I was alone. I didn't have Trevor there. Um... And it wasn't Trevor's fault, because who plans that? Nobody plans that. We were planning on going and spending Christmas with my family. So, while we're in there, we talk about the steps to have, you know, our baby. At the time, we didn't know. So, we, he talked to me about, he's like, there's two ways of doing it. You can have surgery and they can pretty much vacuum your baby out of you and do a DNC or you can get induced and deliver him and I'm like I'm delivering him I'm not doing it the other way that sounds horrific and not fair not right so called Trevor afterwards and it I think that was one of the hardest things was having to tell somebody the worst news ever over the phone. 
and I was mad at, you know, our job because, you know, I think State was there interviewing and, you know, I called and told them it was an emergency that I needed to talk to them. They called me back and they're like, well, is it really an emergency? And I'm like, yes. And I tell them what happened and they're like, okay. And so we go home and we tell our family. So I carry him. It was a boy. I carry him for the next week. And that Monday, it was Monday morning, I went in. And I got, they did an ultrasound to confirm that there was no heartbeat. I then was admitted into the maternity floor. And I, um, let's see, you know, got admitted and went through all the steps and they hooked me up and they started the induction process. I wish I found my journal because I had wrote down everything that, you know, they did and I got, um, but I can't find it. It's packed away somewhere. <laughs> but I know that, you know, I got Pitocin and I got probably some other meds that induce you. That well that night, you know, Trevor was complaining that he couldn't fall asleep, so I was like, oh, I'll go to Walmart, you know, I don't think anything's going to happen anytime soon, go get whatever you need to try and sleep better. And probably within 10 minutes of him being there, I was like, I gotta push. <laughs> and like, I feel like I gotta push. And at 1.46, December 29th, we gave birth to our little boy. And it was probably the most raw and painful and, you know, just saddest moment in my life. Yeah. Um, Was Trevor gone then when you gave birth to Vladimir? No, he was in there. He had just gotten back. And I told him, I was like, "I, I have to push. Yeah. I think Trevor was caught off guard when I told him I needed to push because otherwise, you know, if he didn't get back when he did, he would have missed it. So I actually did not go back into the regular delivery rooms. I delivered right there in my room that I was admitted in. I gave birth and he was, oh gosh, 2.7 ounces. And six and a half inches long. A baby is incredible at that age. At 16 weeks, they have their little ears, their fingers, their toes. Um, you can see where their fingernails are going to be. You know, it's, it's a human. It's, it's you and me and everybody else in this world that, you know, that grows and it's I mean when you're pregnant you don't think of these things go through that whole pregnancy and you deliver and you have a seven pound baby and when they're growing they don't think you really think much about like they actually have arms and legs and all this stuff and it was hard we weren't able to get any footprints or anything like that because the skin was still you know, he wasn't developed enough. He was, I wasn't far enough along for them to get anything like that. They tried, but they just couldn't. Um, How were you treated? How was your care there, Kim? Like, were they really supportive and, and explanatory about 
what would happen, what he would look like. Did they give you time with him after he came? What thoughts and feelings or prayers did you have for your little guy? Um, they were phenomenal. They, you know, their bedside manner was out of this world. Um, I don't think I could ever be a nurse on the OB floor and go through seeing mothers lose the, an infant or their baby or their, you know, child at any stage of pregnancy. They were so supportive and understanding and there did anything. Uh, I don't think they really gave me much of information about what the baby would actually look like, but they did just talk about the process of being induced and how I'd have contractions, and I actually didn't have to get dilated all the way to 10 centimeters because he wasn't, you know, I wasn't nine months pregnant. You know, they, they were able to just kind of guide me through that process of being induced and kind of what to expect, but they never, and I don't think I really got anything about him himself, but they were really good. Yeah. Do you remember, like, after you delivered him, did they wrap him up in a little blanket and let you and Trevor hold him and have some time together? Um, I, I know, too, Kim, just like you were saying, you don't expect to know exactly what your little baby looks like in there. And and he was certainly far enough along to pull those heartstrings. I mean, a, there would still be a loss even if you miscarried, right? And it was just a mass of yeah. cells. But, like, I'm sure seeing his little ears and his eyes and his little hands and toes, like, y- you're really mourning the loss of your son. And what did that look like? How long did were you able to sit with him? And what were the options as far as, like, cremation or burial or, or things like that? Because I think a lot of people wonder, when a baby dies in utero, what are your options? Because you're going through death. Yeah, we did. We got to spend some time with him. You know, my, I don't like saying stepmom anymore. I call her my bonus mom, Lori. <laughs> She's um, great. You know, she lost. You know, she and my dad came and, um, cause we knew I was getting induced, so I think they came like that Monday. And so my dad and Lori came. Trevor's mom was there. My best friend, Rochelle, was there. Um, you know, she went home and came back at like two in the morning. You know, she didn't care. She's like, I'm coming. Yeah. And so some of the people that, I hold near and dear were there for me and you know Lori was there Trevor's mom was there Rochelle was there you know at 2 two thirty in the morning you know there for Trevor and I um we got to hold him um I don't remember how long we held him um but he was wrapped up in a little blanket and they you know gave us as much time as we needed you know his mom was an avid Picture taker, she loves taking pictures, so she actually got some pictures, not necessarily of Trevor and I in them, but, you know, us, me holding him, and, you know, so I can remember what a little human looks like at 16 weeks. Helen, his mom, was very 
well-known in our town that we were living in. I mean, she was there for anyone who needed it. If you needed your lawn mode, she was there. If you needed painting, her and her best friend Joyce were there. If you needed anything, I mean, absolutely anything, they were there. And if you needed a number, she would have it for you. Or if you needed a ride, she was there. And was out of this world. So she was friends with funeral director out of a town called Platt, about 45 minutes away from Plankington. But he also had an office in Plankington where we lived and got a hold of him. So we actually buried him. We didn't cremate him. We buried him over by Trevor's grandma. But, you know, they provided a casket with which, you know, an infant would fit in. So he was super, super tiny in it. But, you know, I think Trevor had picked out a blanket that, you know, he wanted for him. Helen's best friend, Joyce, actually cut it in half. So I have the other half. Um, the other half he was buried in. But it was, um, so we buried him in Plankington. Um, and, you know, had a headstone made that matches the rest of his family that's buried over there. And I learned that, you know, they didn't, he didn't have to be buried six feet. You know, I think he's only like two or three feet. But that morning when I was discharged, the hard part was walking past the nursery and leaving that floor knowing that I wasn't walking away with, you know, my baby. I wasn't happy. I wasn't, you know, walking away with Vladimir and Trevor and I on cloud nine and, you know, the stuff walking away and walking past babies that I was angry. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I think it was it might have been that day or it might have been the next day. We had a little service for him. Um, His name is Monsignor Steve. He was the Catholic priest at the Catholic Church in Plankington. Um, I think he was retired then but good friends of Helen. Helen would watch his dog, you know, when he'd go on trips, and so, I mean, that just, she did everything. He came and blessed him at his burial, and it was my parents, and it was Helen, and it was Rochelle, and Olivia, and I think it was just us, you know, and we had our just private little service, and Helen had to drag me out of the car. I didn't want to get out of the car because I didn't want it to be real. It was, it was one of the crappiest moments. Um, what did the priest say was said over Vladimir? I don't. I think he just, you know, had holy water and blessed him. Um, and I don't. I was, I was on that. I was. Yeah. I was just staring, you know, yeah. pissed off at the world, if I can right. say that. <laughs> yeah, you can say that. Do you, did it, was it important for you, for Vladimir to receive that blessing, or do you feel like Helen knew that that's what you needed at the time? I'm sure, you know, you thank God that all those people were there for you, because how would you even know? I think 
you were probably traumatized and stuck in the moment, right? Yeah. No, I was very happy. I know. I was, I felt good, you know, that he, you know, my senior Steve was there and that he blessed him. Um, it is important to me. Um, and I appreciated him being from the Catholic religion that Trevor and I having a child out of wedlock was not even an issue. Like, I, you know, never felt judged by him, never, you know, had a negative feeling from him. He was, he was there and he was great and he was understanding and, you know, I think felt our pain, you know, that we were feeling. And so I think he, he was just, he was the perfect guy to be there and bless Vladimir and, you know, he was the closest one to Helen and, you know, Trevor, you know, was near and dear to my heart and Helen was, so it's just, it made sense to have him be that person to do it and I believe he did say that our father, he might have said that, but otherwise I just, I zoned everything out. Yeah. Just stared off into space and was just couldn't believe that I was that person that, you know, lost a baby and had to go through what I believe one in four women go through. So Yeah, and gosh Kim, isn't that such a high number? It breaks my heart just hearing you say that statistic because that is a quarter of us that will go through that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, you don't think about it. You're in a room with, you know, four people and one one of them's going through it or has gone through it or will go through it. And so you just, I mean, it's crazy. It's unreal. And it's something that I never imagined. Um, I didn't have answers. I was in the middle of changing jobs at the time, so I didn't think I necessarily had insurance. Um, I, later on, I realized, duh, my insurance goes through the end of the month. I could have done testing on him, but I didn't realize that at the time, and so we just accepted the fact that we, you know, lost him, and it was just because of natural causes. You know, we don't have any real answers as to why he, you know, didn't. Yeah. Is that something that bothers you? I mean, would it make any of this easier to know what was wrong? Or have you sort of accepted that that's just what happened? Because I'm sure part of that is, like, not healthy to focus on, you know? Yeah. No, at the time, I didn't really think about it. I kind of would go through phases where I wish I would have gotten answers. And then I go through phases where, you know, it's life and then my life and it's my story and you know he god had better plans for him i guess yeah he i was angry that. at god i was very very angry and you know i just didn't understand why he put me through that but you know answers came on you know four and a half years later so yeah so so do you want to share a little bit of your grieving process from that moment on until four and a half years later? I really struggled with 
feel like I probably had some depression going on prior to. I think it's all something that people tend to have and people deal with it differently. And me, I just try to deal with it on my own. Um, and then going through that loss, it just intensified. I um, was mad because I was told by people, well, at least you were full term. Well, there were words that I wanted to share with people that probably weren't the nicest because it was like, that's not fair. <laughs> right. You know, isn't it a amazing? Loss is a loss. Right. A loss is a loss. And isn't it amazing what people will say to you? And really, truly, we know they're trying to come from a good place, but it's like, that's not better. That would suck too. Like, right. It, it's, it's not their place to try to reframe it in a way that would make you feel better when you've already been through hell. Right. Yeah. So it was, it was not easy hearing those things from time to time. Um, Heidi, she was a huge resource for me because she had, you know, been there for me. I was able to relate to her and vice versa. Um, she, I mean, she was my rock there for a while because I could go to her. She knew exactly how I was feeling. She, I still keep in contact with her every now and then, but, um, which I'm terrible at keeping contact with people. I need to do a better job, but aren't we all though, Kim? <laughs> yes. Hard. So I, I was really angry at people for saying those things to me because there's just times where you just need to not just say anything, but let people know you're there. And I think that it's important that if, to me, it's very important that if someone's going through that, that you allow them to share their story or talk to you about it if you want to, or if they want to, because it is uncomfortable, but it's life and it's real life and it, it, it's not going away. <laughs> You know, and when people feel like they can't talk about it, I think the depression manifests from that, too. Because it's like, well, people don't want to hear what I'm going through. or People don't want to hear about my loss. Or they are tired of hearing about it. And it's, it's important for people to be able to talk about it without it being a touchy subject or something that people want to avoid because they don't know what they're going to say or things like that, and I think, you know, sometimes it's best to just be quiet and open your ears and listen and, you know, just let them know that you're there for them. Um, Absolutely. So I went, I went through, you know, that, um, and then because I was trying to deal with my depression for a long time on my own. Like, I didn't take antidepressants. I didn't go to therapy. I didn't do this stuff. I resorted to anger and frustration and, you know, just life sucking and not being fair. And um, it affected my relationship. Um, and I was more vocal and he was more shut down and reserved and was, you know, stone-faced, like there was no reaction, there was no feeling there, there was no expression, it was very hard. 
Um, and I think it was probably about 2018 where my depression really started to, you know, get worse. And because of the loss and because of my relationship, I feel like failing. But I'm like, hey, my grandparents put in 50 plus years. Like, they didn't just give up. I got to find a way to make this work. You know, I got to keep pushing through because how am I going to get 30 plus years with somebody if I just give up every time, you know, we get into an argument or I don't agree with something. So I would stay in a situation where I probably shouldn't have been staying because I knew deep down it wasn't going to go any further than what it was. Um, so I actually got to the point of suicide. I was in a dirt place. I had a plan. I knew what I was going to do, where I was going to do it. Um, and it would get worse each time him and I had an argument or a fight. And it because I felt like I wasn't getting anywhere. I felt like I wasn't getting answers. I almost felt stuck in the relationship because it was something I was so used to and I was comfortable there and I didn't want to pick up my life and start over. And so I felt trapped and, um, and then get, I think it was 2018 where, you know, I, or it might have been early 2019, I don't know. Um, but I finally went to my doctor. What did your life look like day to day where you were like, this is not me? Um, I literally lost interest in a lot of stuff. I, you know, Trevor and I, he got me into hunting. You know, I loved hunting and I wanted to do more of that with him. And I felt like those, I wasn't getting that from him. Like it was easy for him to plan trips with, you know, his good friend or do this stuff. But when it came to me, I, I didn't feel like I was getting that when he when. He knew that my interest in it was peaking, and I knew when I didn't want to hunt anymore, or I'd get home from work, and I'd sit in my chair, and I'd binge watch TV. I had no interest in, you know, doing stuff around the house. I didn't want to go do stuff with Olivia. I, you know, I felt awful because it was pretty much go play and I just sat on my phone and binge watched Hulu or Netflix and I you know was tired all the time I didn't I just couldn't find the interest in the things that mattered to me anymore and I would try you know and so I think that's when I knew it was, you know, starting to get bad was when I just really didn't want to take part in life's activities. You know, I was going through the motions. Um, and so when I got to that point of suicide, I went to my doctor. I had to. Um, Olivia's saved me because I was like, you can't leave her. <laughs> And broke down in my doctor's office probably for a good hour and, you know, talked to her about what was going on and 
we had a game plan and, you know, I started therapy and, um, started an antidepressant and everything and, um, went from there. And I felt okay for a while. Um, and then it just kind of resurfaced in late 2019 and then in 2020 I just, I had to end things in that relationship because I just, I couldn't keep going through the cycle of being okay for a little bit and then being depressed and then being okay and then being depressed and feeling like I wasn't getting the answers. And I think what did it for me was he refused therapy. He wouldn't do couples therapy. He wouldn't go with me to my therapy sessions. He had no interest in it. And he didn't feel like he needed somebody to tell him how to live his life. It's like what you said, how can you try so hard? 50% of the relationship can't try so hard and want to be better and want to communicate and lay all the feelings out on the table when your partner isn't willing to do that. And so you got to a place then, Kim, where you realized, I can't live my life with someone who's closed off, right? When you were showing up and you weren't giving Mm -hmm. up on Olivia and you weren't giving up on your life, but you realized your relationship wasn't going anywhere, right? Right. It was hard, you know. I wanted to have a baby again. I wanted to get married. And those were very foreign subjects. Like, we just, you couldn't talk about them. And it was, he was very closed off about it and wouldn't talk about it. And, you know, so it was very hard for me because I'll be 34 this year. I was, oh, gosh, what? 32 at the time, and it's like, I don't want to sit here and twiddle my thumbs. Right. Wondering when we're going to get married or have kids again, and, you know, I even threw the idea of, well, we can wear rings to show our promise to each other, and even that was like a no-go, and so it was just a lot of words that weren't spoken, and a lot of, you know, things that weren't said that, you know, I think ultimately affected our relationship. (laughs) How did you pull yourself out of an unhealthy situation and suicidal ideation? How did you do Um, that? I think Jason, who I've known for, well, I met him before I met Trevor. We've been friends. I contacted him, and we talked and had dinner one night, and I just, you know, it was... It was what I needed to get out of that relationship with Trevor. Um, and because I can't tell you how many times I texted my best friend and Lori, like, I'm done. I'm leaving. <laughs> and I wouldn't. I would stay. But I think it was just, I finally reached my point of being done. I was done. And I didn't want to do it anymore. And when that night when I told him that, you know, we needed to break up, I felt a weight lifted off my shoulders. Um, I stopped taking my antidepressants. I didn't feel suicidal anymore. And I think it was because I didn't have to try and fight for something that wasn't going to happen. And also in that moment, I accepted and was a okay with losing blood because 
I couldn't imagine having to co-parent. You know, it would have been difficult. Um, it wasn't an easy breakup. <laughs> and, uh, um, so there were things that just kind of were taken off my shoulders when we broke up. And I was okay with that. Yeah. Did Trevor, like, fight for you at all at the end? Did he say, like, oh, I'll change, or was it a pretty clean split? No. He, I mean, he was, he was sad, I think, but it wasn't, there was no fight, you know, it, there wasn't anything. Um, Yeah. You know, it was hard telling Olivia. Um, I think he was more sad about telling her, <laughs> you know, because those two were two peas in the pod. But it, you know, when one person tries for so long and you don't get results, at some point something else has to change. And yeah. I, just, I couldn't keep doing it. What has Olivia said to you about your breakup with Trevor? Is there anything, you know, I feel like kids say the wisest things, right? Or make yeah. you go like, oh my God, I just love you. Because they see it so clearly. Has she said anything to you um, over the years or during that time that really just got you through? No. I think she's wise above her years. Is that the same? I think it is, but... It is. It is she, now. It wasn't before. <laughs> she she was sad, um, but kids are resilient, and she moved on with life. She missed him at first, but she never really said anything that just kind of, you know, was gut-wrenching or stuck with me or anything like that. I think she just kind of... Went about her business and does what Olivia does. Yeah. What about the loss of Vladimir? What did she know about her brother or say to you about her brother that helped you grieve? Was there anything that sticks out in your mind that she said or her attitude around it? How much did she know about it too, Kim? Um, Olivia knew everything. Um, She knew she had a baby brother. Um, she knows that he went to heaven, um, with her other baby brother. It would be her dad and, um, her stepmom's, their baby, their miscarriage. But she, um, she knows about it, you know, and she, she expresses that she misses him. She never got to see him, but she knows I was pregnant and that we lost a baby, um, and she would go with me to his grave site and, you know, we'd go see him and, you know, talk to him, you know, do whatever. So, she, I don't know, she expresses it, but. It's pretty sweet that she misses him. Like, she misses the yeah. life that she could have had with her brother. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm just so thankful you were able to pull yourself out of such a dark place because I think a lot of people would hear that story, Kim, and be like, wow, how did she not stay? Because that felt sometimes like the easier thing to do. But you were hating yourself because of the Mm -hmm. situation you were in. 
And that was enough to pull you out. What enlightenment did you have where you realized, like, no, I'm not going to kill myself. I'm going to remove myself from the situation. Where did you have that feeling and what did you feel? Like, when did the tables turn for you? It was last year when I, you know, got in contact with Jason, who I'm with now. Um, It was... I just... And it wasn't really just anything we talked about or said, but it was just, he was always there for me, even though I, like, pushed him away. The last seven, he was there for me no matter what, and I just, I was tired, um, and I knew that if I wanted to live my life and I wanted to be there for Olivia, I had to get out. Like, I just, I had to go because I knew if I stayed, the outcome wouldn't be good. Um, and, you know, it's, there's been people who have committed suicide that are friends of my friends or, you know, just different people in life that have done it, you know, since I felt that way. And it just truly opens your eyes when you are in that moment in life where you're in that dark spot and you have your plan and you know what you're going to do um and you you're able to pull yourself out it you're able to you're able to understand where those people who do commit suicide successfully you're able to understand like where they're coming from or their pain or their hurt because you just you you don't know where to go with it you have resources you have friends and you have family but there's only so much that you feel like telling or spilling or anything and you just get to a point where you just feel um you just feel like you can't do it anymore or you don't you don't want to keep burdening them with your problems or your feelings or your sadness because I'm not going to lie, I can be a draining person to my friends sometimes and it's, you know, you don't want to keep dragging them down and so you just, I've learned to be more sympathetic to those that have committed suicide and their family and their friends because it's, it is a dark place and it's unexplainable. It's it's hard to explain where you're at and why people get there. I don't know. I, yeah. It's hard to find words. Yeah, no, you're right. I, you know, I've gone through during my grief process of just being in a chair and losing my ability to walk. It, It is. Some days it's, like, exhausting to even explain how low you feel. And mm-hmm. I agree. I think life gives us experiences that if people don't have, a experience like you do with going through suicidal ideation and having a plan, I think people can certainly understand feeling so low and feeling so deep in depression. I mean, depression is more common than you and I would like to admit, but it is. And what a scary place, Kim, but I'm so glad that Olivia really was like the light that you needed and pulled you out. Yeah. Okay, so we sort of ended off on you saying, like, you understand now deeper, like, people's hurts and what they are going through. And if people that are listening have friends or family members that know someone who's committed suicide and succeeded, 
you know, sometimes we hear people saying like, I don't know how they could do that. It's so selfish. But you have an understanding, Kim, of like how deep and dark that place can be and how some people can't mm-hmm. remove themselves from it. Is there anything you want to say to the, say to the listeners who might be in a dark place right now or know someone who's gone through it? Um, what resources are there? Are there any like inspirational things you want to say to these people about this? Uh, I think that a good place to go is your doctors if you have one. She took the time out of her day to listen to me and care. And I think that any good doctor would. So I would hope that, you know, these people suffering this have that benefit of having a phenomenal doctor that'll sit there and listen to you and let you cry and, you know, tell them or listen to you tell them what's going on. Um, I, I don't have the answers or what to say about as far as getting out because I still, you still don't know when someone's going through it a lot of the times until it's too late. And so my biggest thing is be kind because you truly don't know what anyone else is going through. You don't know other people's battles. You don't, you don't know everyone's day to day life struggles. I mean, most people who look at me, they don't know I donated a kidney. They don't know that I lost a baby at 16 weeks and went through delivery. They don't know that I, you know, had a suicidal plan and came close multiple times to going and doing it, you know. A lot of people don't know these things. And it, it people just need to be kind. Yeah. <laughs> that, no, I totally agree. That inspirational quote, and that's my saying because the world is cruel out there. And you just don't know. But I'm here for the people. I'm don't need to know you. I don't need to be friends with you, but I'm here to listen and talk to you if you need it, and other people should be able to do the same. You know, you might learn something from that person. Right. But it's it's just so hard. It really is, because you just you don't know, you know? Yeah. I wish I had the answers as to being able to know or get a feeling that someone's in that spot before it's too late you know right i, I know don't have those answers and i don't think a lot of people do no um, what were your options kim do you remember did your did your doctor say like are you not safe to go home right now my doctor told me i needed to hide the guns that were in the house i'm like i need you to do that because <laughs> I don't think he'll listen to me. So she actually called Trevor and was like, this is very serious. Like, I need you to hide the gun that's in the house. Um, and because this is what Kim's going through. And so he did, you know, I think in that moment he realized that that was actually something serious that was going on with me. Um, not that he was very consoling to me afterwards when I got home, but he, you know, did what she asked. Um, but she, you know, she's like, well, this is what we can do. We can get you on an antidepressant. We can get you set up with therapy, which I have a phenomenal therapist. I stopped seeing her after a while, but I go back tomorrow because I'm like, I need to see Ricky. 
Yeah. And therapy is good, people. Like, if you don't believe the, you know, stereotypes of the things that you hear about seeing a therapist, it's very, like, it's very, I don't know, it's nice and it's a breath fresh up there to talk to somebody that really doesn't know you and has the resources for you. And the other one was I could go to in-treatment therapy and I told her that was a no. I was like, I live in a small town. I don't need people to judge me or, you know, I just, I couldn't put that on myself because I felt like it would have made me worse because people just don't understand and they make their own assumptions and so I needed to do the least amount of possible first to try it and get myself back up before I took that big of a step and so I went with antidepressants and I went with you know seeing a therapist once a week okay well that's thank you for sharing all of that that was probably really hard to share was there anything else you want to share about anything that you've said so far? Um, I think it's really good you gave steps to people um, that might be going through this to get a doctor and let them know, be kind, get therapy, and don't be ashamed of that. I would second that, too. I wish therapy was didn't have such a bad stigma. Yeah, it does have a bad stigma. It's like, we're all human. The things that we experience in life are new and scary and dark sometimes. It's not always rainbows and butterflies. And so I agree with you. I would second that 100%. And I love, Kim, that you knew you were in a good place and you could end therapy, but you're not ashamed to go back. Like, I'm happy that you know it's time to check back in and that that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's... and. I think people, my best advice for things about like therapy is don't give up after your first therapist because I tried a different one before I met Ricky and her and I just did not click and I didn't feel like my sessions were going in order. Like I felt like I would go and then I'd go and kind of repeat myself but not move forward. It was kind of choppy. And then I met Ricky, and it was very, you know, I did my session. And then the next week, we kind of recapped, and she asked if I did my homework, you know. She'd give me, like, little assignments or whatever to work on, like, as far as, like, changing my way of thinking. Um, But she, it, it flowed. So sometimes you have to try one therapist or two or three or four or, you know, to find the one that fits you and that, you know, makes you feel comfortable and makes you want to come back. She made me want to come back. And and the other thing I liked was she was over telemed, so we weren't actually person to person. And I find myself struggling when I'm person to person because I'm like, it's kind of intimidating. So if that's you, I think, See if that's an option where it's over the screen, you know, the TV screen, and it's less intimidating because to me that was also helpful. Um, but yeah, don't give up after one therapist because sometimes it takes a couple to find the right one that fits your 
life and who you are and, you know, you gotta yeah. find the one that clicks with you. Did you say, so that friend Jason of yours, are you with him now? Are you guys in a relationship? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. so sweet. Yeah. So, uh, how well, we is got Kim? pregnant unexpectedly. Yeah, hey, that's, that's so exciting. So you guys have been together for like a year, two years? How long have you been together? A little over a year. Yeah. So, how do you feel, is this the first pregnancy you've had since Vladimir? Yes. How are you feeling? Do you feel like, if it's okay that I ask, do you feel like you're going back to see your therapist because you are around the same time you lost Vladimir and you just want to work through some feelings? Talk about how Kim is today. How have you changed for the better? What's life like now? I know it's not perfect, but why should people hold on? Why should people fight to see another day and not give up? Um, because there's more out there. Um, I see what families go through missing their loved ones that were, you know, decided that suicide was their only resource. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to move into the career that I'm in if I did. Um, I wouldn't have the friends that I do or have met along the way. I wouldn't get to see Olivia turn nine this year. I wouldn't, you know, have my dogs that I can finally have. But, you know, that was something I missed out on when I was with Trevor because he didn't want dogs. He didn't want the pet hair and all that stuff. And now I I have three. (laughs) You know, so I went from not having dogs to having three crazy ones. Um, And then just life, I guess. It's tough. You know, Jason and I have our moments. <laughs> we butt heads. Um, but I wouldn't trade it, you know, for the world. I um, struggled with this pregnancy at first because it was unexpected. It wasn't quite what I wanted in my life at the time. Um, and, you know, him and I went through a really, really bad situation. And, um, and, so I'm excited now, um, but I did. I started to get anxiety around 15 weeks. I called my doctor. I'm like, something just doesn't feel right. I'm like, I, you know, I felt Vladimir moving around this time. I haven't felt movements yet. I haven't. I'm just really anxious. And so they were phenomenal, and they got me in to do some heart, listen to some heart tones real quick, and they were there. And even at my 16-week appointment, I got kind of got, you know, anxious again. So I'm like, well, you know, what if they don't hear anything? Um, and baby's still being strong, you know, around 150. So each appointment, you know, is better and better. My next one's in June. We'll find out what we're having. <laughs> so, but no, things are good. I just think that... When you're in that dark spot, it's hard to see what life has to offer you. And if you're able to push through it and get yourself out of that situation or that position and move forward with life, I think that you'll be happy that you did and you'll realize the things that you miss out on. Yeah, it's it's good. 
Good. Very good, Kim. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I think it's pretty amazing that like we started with just the sadness and the loss of Vladimir and now you're in a place where you can be excited and have a little baby that's redeeming to your life. It's exciting, mm-hmm. right? Like it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have two questions left for you. How has faith played a role in your life in overcoming adversity? If you want to answer that one first. Uh, I've struggled with my faith. Um, I truly have. Jason and I both agree that we need to find a church that we like and start going to church. Um, I grew up, you know, going to church, you know, maybe not on a regular basis, but more regular than my life now um and i really i really lost faith you know when i lost my baby and then um again when trevor's mom passed away unexpectedly in 2017 i just lost a lot of faith and didn't understand why god does the things that he does and my least favorite saying is everything happens for a reason i hate it but i know that it does and you never want to hear it when they're going through a tough time, but it, you eventually get answers as to why stuff happens. And, um, so I just, I don't know if I really answered the question, but I just, I, I lost my faith. <laughs> and it's something I need to find again. So why? Why do you want to find it again? Do you feel like God is pursuing you to come back now that you understand? There's a reason for some of that pain, even if it is just so that you can understand the people you love better. I mean, what, why, why do you um, want to go back? I want to be able to, I want to feel good again. And I know that finding the right church and the right people will help that happen. And Olivia goes to a Catholic school, um, and seeing her love for God and being committed to getting her, you know, getting baptized, and she chose her baptism, you know. I didn't get her baptized when she was younger. Um, she asked to get baptized, and I thought that was huge. Um, I was proud of her. Um, you know, she's working hard to go through First Communion here in a couple months, and I want to be able to have faith and, you know, share those things with her and not necessarily feel uncomfortable, you know, and she's excited about it. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, yeah, you know, just listening, but not listening. And um, so I want to just be able to share those moments with her. Um, Something that stuck to me was... Jason's mom and dad, when they were here in February, you know, talked to us about going to church. And they're like, good things started happening to us when we started going to church more regularly. And it's not like, you know, that, I don't know how to explain it. It's just because they were serving God, pretty much, and going to church and, you know, giving their offerings and things like that naturally good things started happening for them and to me that spoke to me so it's like that's what we need <laughs> yeah you need good people the in your corner and, yeah. yeah 
I said, yeah, you need good people in your corner. And um, it kind of just like therapy teaches you how to overcome adversity. I think faith does that too. And I'll pray, Kim, that you start to feel the excitement of the Holy Spirit and God's hand over your life because I totally agree with you. It's not something that's always been comfortable, but it's always produced good results or at least the ability to overcome some of that hardness. So I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy that like God has lit a fire in Olivia's heart and she is pursuing him. That's pretty incredible. And what a story for a little girl to like be so on fire for God. Yeah, it's awesome. She likes her school. She goes to Holy Trinity. Um, it's a Catholic school. Um, she loves it. You know, she loves her teacher. Um, you know, smaller class sizes, there's benefits. You know, she's learning what she needs to, but she's also learning about God and, you know, so. It's good. Good. It's good for her, and I'm proud of her for, you know, enjoying it, you know, and wanting so. All right, last question is, how would you define resilience? When I think of resilience, I think it's overcoming obstacles in your life or tough times in your life and pushing through. Um, it's not giving up because... I could have easily given up, and I feel like I didn't. So, you know, resilience comes in many forms and in ways. And, you know, getting out of a relationship that you know truly isn't healthy for your mental health and getting out of a depression that you didn't think you ever could, like, that's all resilience. It's just a matter of taking those steps to you know, get through it and finding those steps and those resources and asking for help. Thank you so much for sharing all of that, Kim. I know that was hard. So thank you so much. Is there anything else on your mind or heart you want to share? Or is that, does that about sum it up? <laughs> no, that's about it. I can't wait to get back on with you and yeah, a positive story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and it's so cool. I think it's amazing. I can't wait to hear all about it. And I know the listeners will be saying, where's the story about Kim's organ donation? So we'll definitely get you yes, back on I, there. I can't wait to talk about it because it's such a surreal moment. And if more people did it, I just I think, you know, it would, you just, you it humbles you, you know, and it's just, it's a good feeling. So there's a lot to talk about there. <laughs> I could ramble on now about it, but yeah. So well, we'll thank you, Kim. For more. Yes, we will. We'll do a part two with Kim all about the organ donation. So thank you for your time today. Thanks for being vulnerable with us. And, um, you know, I know one reason why I started this podcast was to help people not feel alone. And I think it's, I think it would be wrong if if I didn't address suicidal ideation and being in the pits because just like you're saying, there's always a way out and there's always things to look forward to if you push through. The scope of the way we feel ranges so much, right? Like you can feel on top of the clouds and you can also feel deep, dark and in a valley and it's hard. We're not trying to make little of that, but it's important to remember that when you're in the pits, there's only up from there, right? It, you can only 
get better day to day. And if you give it time, life is always worth living. It is. And I think, too, I think it's important that if you are able to open up and talk to someone, you might find that person that's been there before and that can guide you and help you. I mean, you, like I said earlier, you, you don't know what people have gone through or are going through. And I think being able to find someone you can open up to, you might find that person that can relate to you or tell you, hey, I've been there and let me help you. Let me get you the resources that you need and be that person. Yeah, absolutely. You're the best. You're the best. <laughs> I say that all the time. I have to stop saying it. People people laugh at me. They're like, am I the best? Am I really? I'm like, yeah, you are. <laughs> A lot of people are the best. Well, you thank know. you. I just want to say thank you to all your listeners. Know that you're not alone. We're all out here going through life. and Don't be afraid to reach out. This has been Push Diaries Podcast. Please visit our website at pushdiariespodcast.com to see our mission and learn more about the guests. This is your podcast too. I want to hear your stories. Email me at pushdiariespodcast at gmail.com and consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com forward slash pushdiariespodcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for being here. Your support on this show means a lot. If you have time, please head to Instagram and Facebook and follow me on social media. Every share that you give a friend and family is greatly appreciated, and I am honored to be able to bring inspiring stories to all of you so that we feel less alone in such a crazy time. The beautiful thing about these episodes and this podcast is it can be listened to at any time, as anyone will be able to find connections to it in ways that they can be inspired. I want to hear your stories. Email me at pushdiariespodcast at gmail.com to submit an idea for the show. Your stories matter. You are a survivor. If you're listening to this, it means you've made it through hard times. Or if you haven't, I'm hoping that the stories will help you throughout life as you are challenged, stretched, and tested. It's important to lean on one another through difficult times as we support one another to cope in a healthy way that doesn't further isolate us. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your support. And most of all, thank you for listening.